there are questions that this text is going to help us answer. Questions that this text will help you answer for your own life. And my prayer is it will remind each of us of how we're supposed to live if we say we believe the gospel. Question number one is this. What should you do with your life? What should you do with your life? That's the first question if you're a note taker. And I thought I'd start with a really easy, not very existential question, right? What should you do with your life? That's what Paul's going to talk about here. He's going to talk about uh, the trajectory of your life if you believe Romans 1 through 11, if it's true for you. He says, it begins with a, a therefore. It has a therefore in the Greek. It's, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brethren. It's, it's connected back. In light of everything I say, therefore, I appeal to you. And the word appeal, uh, you, some of your translations will say urge. That's maybe a little better. There's some strength to this. This is how I want you to live. This is how I'm pleading with you to live, begging you to live. There's a certain way you ought to live in light of the good news of the gospel. And it's this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's think about this text together. What is Paul urging us to do, urging you to do? Uh, There's a lot of, uh, in this passage, cultic language. When I mean cultic, I don't mean like cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your door or something like that. Uh, I mean referring to like religious ceremony, right? There's a lot of words like that, like sacrifice, holy, acceptable, worship. It's language that would have been familiar to those who are familiar with the Jewish sacrificial system. It really would have been familiar to somewhat any religious system that had a temple and sacrifices involved. But because a lot of those that Paul is writing to are those that were Jewish and have then trusted in Christ, they had some understanding that to walk with God involved visiting him in the temple and involved sacrifices and offerings, sometimes from your grain, sometimes from your crops, sometimes an animal. There would be a lot of death, a lot of blood. There would be a lot of cost as you would come and bring the best of your crops or the best of your flock onto the Lord. And what it would do is it would remind the Jewish people as they would do this regularly um, that there was a difference between them and God Right, God, I, I, need, I need forgiveness from you, so I'm going to come offer a sacrifice. I need to atone for sin, or atone for sin, so I'm going to bring a sacrifice. I'm going to express my thankfulness to you, so I will bring an offering. Right? It demonstrated the difference between the two, but it also was a reminder of God's value. So how valuable is God? Well, when you bring him a sacrifice, you don't bring him any lamb, any goat, any ox, You bring your best. Why? Because God is worth more than your best uh, part of your livestock. You bring your best grain because, well, God is the best. It's a sacrificial system that was reflected. God's transcendence is how he's greater than us and how he's worthy. Now, the sacrificial system is not in effect today, not because necessarily it's been canceled, but because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. You look at all the sacrifices of the Old Testament and you find Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. Christ who is ultimately paid for our sins. Christ who ultimately appeases the Father and and pleases him on our behalf. 
But then you get this language for us here, Romans 12. It says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, you, some of you have grown up in church. And because of that, you're familiar with the phrase living sacrifice. But you've got to think how weird this would have been to people in the first century. A living sacrifice. There is no such thing as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice, The nature of sacrifice is that they are sacrificed. They're dead. You've never interviewed a living sacrifice. You've never interviewed a sacrifice before. You've never gotten its thoughts on something because it's it's sacrificed. You understand that? So the idea of a living sacrifice would have been very strange to them. And so what's he talking about? Then he says, present your bodies. Is this talking about mutilation? Self- what, what is going on here? Here's what Paul is saying. In the days of old, prior to Jesus, you would bring your best stuff. God, you're better than my best stuff. I give up my best stuff because I trust you. You're worth more. But now the way you worship God is you give yourself. You put you up on the altar. Every day you say, Lord, I give all of me over to you. It's that your life is fully devoted to God. And everything that you do is an act of worship to him. Everything you do is an offering to him. And in all your decisions, all your feelings, all your emotions, you give it over to him. Christians are to willfully and joyfully commit every aspect of their life to God, to Christ, as an act of worship. This is how we worship him. And this is what we're supposed to do with our lives. You know, as a kid, you were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And some of you would say like a doctor or someone said a police officer, a firefighter, a nurse. Uh, You know, some of you are like, I want to be a 3.27 GPA student in high school. Something like that. And, you know, it's fun when you're younger, right? Some of you, as you get older, that question's not as fun. Because you actually get legit questions like about college and career and spouse. And you're nervous because you're like, how do I not mess this up? And now I have to make a decision. Usually everyone else has made these decisions for me. And so what do I do? And you start feeling the pressure. This passage tells us how not to waste your life. And it can look a lot of different ways, but it's really very simple. You present your life as an offering to the Lord. You live for yourself and not for him. Your grid for your decisions becomes Romans 12.1. Lord, I'm a living sacrifice. I give myself over to you every day. And so for the Christian, we center everything on Christ. It all becomes about the Lord. You devote all your actions, decisions, and ambitions to his rule. And you commit yourself and the best of yourself to him. So whether it's your hobby, your entertainment, or your work, it's for the Lord. Whether it's your private life or your public time, it's all for him. Whether it's personal conversations or phone interactions, it's all for the Lord. I want every thought, every word, 
every action to be for him. And all of that is how we worship him. That's how we worship God. That's how you worship God. You don't go to a temple. You worship him with your life, your whole self. In fact, look at verse at the end of verse 1 there. Living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Now that word there, spiritual, there's some debate a little bit over exactly what that means. Legizomize the word. The idea I think that it's trying to convey is it's, it's your whole self. It's not just externalism. It's not just routines, but all of you, your whole person is devoted to the Lord at all times. And the word worship, lest we forget, the word worship has to do with worth. You know that, right? The word worship comes from uh, the term that means like worth-ship. It's expressing the worth of who God is. That's why some of you, you worship other things by celebrating those things or building your schedule around those things. And you worship those because you think those have the most worth in your life. That's why if like, okay, the sport always makes it on the schedule, but, but this thing never does. Well, which one is, which one is worth more, right? We, we worship that which has the most worth. And what we are supposed to do as Christians is we make all decisions Uh, We uh, orient our life towards demonstrating that God has the most worth to us. The one who is most valuable to us is the Lord, is the God who rules over all things. It's his son, Jesus Christ. More than pleasure, more than approval, more than comfort, more than me. God is worth more than all of those things. And I make those decisions to demonstrate that. Let's look at these words a little bit more. He uses the word holy. So that's, uh, that the word holy there has the idea of, you know, impure, or, uh, sorry, purity, lacking sin, but also has the idea of devoted. Like all of my life is set apart to the Lord. It's for, it's not, it's for him, not for me. I don't fit him in where he doesn't overlap with my schedule. I fit me in where it doesn't sin against him. The word acceptable, the word acceptable there means to please him, which by the way, what good news that we can actually live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, that he delights in and approves of. But, but that's your goal. Um, Paul will say, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, he'll say we have it as our ambition at all times to be pleasing to him. That's what you do. And so here'd be my question. When do you worship? When do you worship? I wonder how most people would answer that question. I think for most people, worship, you go to a house of worship. So Sunday morning is when I worship or, or singing is when I worship. Some of us, we've, we've taken worship and have just made it the affections. So I worship most when I'm listening to that song that really tugs at my heartstrings. I worship most on the last day of camp when it's just like, ah, oh, the high and everything's awesome. And, and the affections are definitely a part of worship. But worship, friends, is something that we can do and should do all the time. All the time we are demonstrating with our actions, with our decisions, that he is worthy. In fact, let me, let me jump ahead. Look at ver- the end of verse 2. 
It says that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? So, so here's what this is uh, saying. The will of God, which by the way, God's will for my life is good and acceptable and perfect. It's good to God. It's, it's acceptable to God. It's perfect in God's sight. God's will is what I'm constantly trying to discern. And I worship God by doing his will. That's what I'm trying to do with my life. That's how I worship, when I worship. So I can worship the Lord on Sunday morning, and there's a special way that we're supposed to meant, uh, worship together, to hear the word together, to sing corporately. This isn't a substitute for private uh, living sacrifice type worship. But at your job, you worship the Lord when you work hard, even when your boss is not there that night. At home, you worship the Lord when you treat your siblings as nice as you treat your friends. You worship the Lord when you get your stuff done, even when your parents are out of town that day. You worship the Lord when no one else sees your browsing history and how you use this phone. But it's not about if anyone else sees it or not. The Lord sees it. He's he's worth more than the approval of others anyway. I worship the Lord with, with how I talk and how I think and how I treat others it's a lifestyle of worship seeking to please him it will also include by the way sacrifice he is a living sacrifice there will then be cost it's hard to say that there's sacrifice if there's not cost what are the things that you're willing to sacrifice for you know, some of you are willing to sacrifice friendships for grades or you're willing to sacrifice grades for friendship. Many of you say, I'm so tired. High school guys, when they have nothing to say in a conversation, will just go, oh man, <laughs> right? You've been there and like, you just didn't have anything to talk about, right? You're not. But why? It's because usually... They're sacrificing sleep for another hour of games, another hour of browsing. Maybe she'll finally text me back despite my awkward advances. Um, Right? You'll sacrifice. I just wonder in our worship of God, is there ever any sacrifice? I'll do my homework later. The game's on. But man, personal time in the Word always takes the L. Bible study, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, does that always lose when it goes to head, head to head up against other obligations? You know what you worship by, by what you're willing to sacrifice for. For us who love the Lord, it's going to mean cost. It does mean loss of comfort, loss of energy, it does mean that it will cost us things. But why do we pursue those? Because, because God's better. Because God is better than those things. You see this modeled in the life of Paul, right? Paul, also, Paul says, Philippians 121, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, I count all things as loss in, in light of the surpassing view of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's how we're supposed to live. So that's sort of the what today. Let's move to question number two. 
All right, so question number two is what should you do, or question number one was what should you do with your life? Question number two then is why should I live this way? Why should I live this way? Why would I give up all of myself for another? Especially in a day and age where I'm supposed to kind of be me and look out for number one. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're thinking right, you should be asking, why would somebody do that? That seems so, I don't know, contrary to my basic instincts. And you're right. So let me, let's just think about what should motivate us to live like this. Uh, well, it tells us here in the text. Paul tells us what the motivation is. Looking in at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, there's a logical flow to what's happening here. It has to do with the idea of uh, what I'll call proportionate gratitude. As Christians, we're always supposed to be thankful, but you can admit there are times when you are more thankful. There's a difference between your friend buying you lunch sort of gratitude and your grandparent buying you a, a car sort of gratitude, right? Those should look different. And if the Lord has blessed us so tremendously, so immeasurably, then that gratitude we have should reflect it. Not paying him back because you can't, you don't pay your grandparent back for the car they bought you, but you're thankful and we should be thankful what the Lord has done. It says it is by the mercies of God that we present your body, our bodies as a living sacrifice. The mercies of God. That is God's kindness in the gospel. The mercies of God, all the good things that God has done for us in Romans 1 through 11. The magnitude of that grace should catapult you towards a life that says, all of my life is for him. If, what he's do- if this is what he's done for me, then I give all of my life over to him. Which is why I would say if you're going to live a Romans 12 living sacrifice, it is not going to be from knowing the grace of God. It is not merely knowledge of God's mercy that causes you to live this way. It is you must be stunned by God's mercy, overwhelmed by it, enthralled by it. You see the glory of God. You see who you are. You see the kindness that he's shown you makes you say, I'm all in. There's plenty of people in this room who know Romans 1 through 11, but they're not all in because you're not stunned by it. You're not amazed by it. And so let's look. Let's remind again, we will not take long on this, but we need to take enough time on this because the only way you live this out is if you understand the background. Hold your spot, go to Romans 1, verse 21. Let's remind ourselves of God's mercy. And let's begin by reminding ourselves that it's God's mercy, not God's obligation. Some of us have tricked ourselves into thinking that the gospel is something that we, uh, well, God should have done. We know it so well. We're so familiar with God's character. We think this is what should have happened. And it shouldn't have. Because Romans 1, verse 21, tells us about ourselves. And if you're new this morning and you're like, man, I'm hoping to learn more about what this Christianity thing is, you've picked the perfect Sunday to come. Because this is Christianity. And by the way, if you're trying to figure out, like, man, I don't know how to share the gospel with my friends. Well, let me just give you the overview of Romans 1 through 11. 
Because that's going to help you understand how to explain who God is and what he's done for sinners. And they are sinners, Romans 1.21. Because they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That is, man in his sin said, I don't want anything to do with God's glory. Instead of worshiping him, I'm going to worship other things. Other gods, ideologies, self, etc. And it wasn't just uh, non-religious people. Chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do these sins yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Somewhere in this room that there are two kinds of sinners. The kinds of sinner that says, I want nothing to do with God, I worship these other things. And the kind of sinner that says, those people are evil. I do the same things they do, but at least I know they're evil. Oh friend, God is telling you that both of those people are equally lost. It would be no different to march in a pride parade than to know the law, judge people for disobeying it, and not obey it yourself. Just as wicked before God. They they these are the kinds that misrepresent God, according to chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Chapter 3, verse 9 gives us the summary. It says, what then, are Jews, we Jews, religious people, any better off than those Greeks? No, for all are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so we have no hope of being made right with God. We don't do enough good deeds to be made right with God. If we're going to be made right with God, we need somebody to help us do that. By our works, we cannot be claimed to be holy enough. That's exactly the mercy that God has shown us in Jesus. Instead of sending wrath, he sends Christ. Verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Christ came. And Christ lives the perfect life we should have lived. And by the way, Christ comes according to the plan of God to reconcile sinners who cannot otherwise save themselves. Jesus lives the life we should have lived, and then on the cross, he dies the death we should have died. So that if we have, here's the key word, faith in him, trust in him, we devote ourselves over to him, trusting him to rescue us, to be the substitute for our sins. We are then righteous, viewed by God as holy, Jesus on the cross viewed as if he lived our lives. We get to be viewed as if we lived his. And this is not a trick. This is not some scheme that God planned up because chapter 4 verse 3 tells us that this plan for being saved by trusting Jesus, it's always been the way God works. Chapter 4 verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. How do I know it's belief that saves me, not my good works? Well, well, that's how it worked for Abraham. And that's how it works for us as well. 
Take a look at verse 23 of chapter 4. It says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If we have faith in Christ, if we have faith, then he did die for our sins. He was raised that you'd be made right with God. So what are the benefits of that? Okay, I believe that. What are the benefits of that? Well, that's what chapters five through eight tell us. Chapter five, therefore, I read this earlier. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want peace with God? Do you this morning want to know that you're at peace with the God of the universe? It only comes through Christ and it's guaranteed through Christ. You can know it today that it's yours. This mercy is shown despite the fact, as I read earlier, verse 8, that God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not about Jesus helping those who have been helping themselves. It's about rescuing those who are helpless, who are his enemies. And yet he dies in their place to pay for their sin. Not my sin. My sin's awful. Not according to chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Grace is greater than our sin. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. That's the good news we have. And it's not only that he forgives us. I'll move a little faster now. Chapter 6 tells us he gives us a new life. He gives us a new heart, 617. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. You might go, man, I love obeying, but I still see this struggle in me. Well, well, friend, there's also what I'll call the mercy of description. It's descriptive mercy because look at chapter 7, verse 21. You think, yeah, but I, now I have a heart that wants to obey. Well, God in his mercy tells you that while you struggle with sin, that's, that's normal. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Notice, I have this delight, this desire, but I struggle. He says, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But verse, chapter 8, verse 1, But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the mercy of God, ready? The mercies of God include no condemnation. You receive none of the wrath that should justly fall on your head. The mercy of God includes the gift of the Spirit in you. Chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That he puts his Spirit in you to change your desires and to change your actions. The Spirit, according to 8, verse 13, helps us put sin to death. The Spirit tells us that we're adopted by God, according to chapter 8, verse 14. Listen to 8.15. This is the mercy of God for struggling sinners. 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So how do I have confidence 
that I'm really, I'm really God's child? Well, God put his spirit in there as a reminder, as a, as a sort of voice to constantly say, God is your father in Christ. Tells us a future glory. He tells us a present hope, right? Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love him, those who called according to his purposes. He tells us that that present hope, according to 8, 29 and 30, began because God chose us in the beginning. He tells us, therefore, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Take a look at verse 36. Or sorry, verse 37. No, in all the, sorry, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'll summarize chapters 9, 10, 11 since we spent three weeks on those. If you're under grace, it's because God chose you before the foundation of the world. You didn't choose him. His mercy allows all sinners to feel the guilt of their sin so they would trust in Jesus and receive mercy. That, friends, is chapter 12, verse 1 now, the mercies of God. God loves you in spite of you. He sought you despite you running from him. You are innocent in spite of your guilt. You have a future and a hope when all you deserve is life and death. And the, or so all you deserve was death and punishment. And the only response then is to say, I'm about this God. My life is for him. I can't live for myself anymore. I can't play this sort of clock in, clock out Christianity where every Sunday from 7.30 to 2.30, maybe 5 to 8.30 at night if I come Sunday night, and Wednesday nights are for God and everything else is for me. And I spend those times feeling bad about what I did the rest of the other times, but those other times is still my time. It's all his. It's the only logical response to the mercy he's given us, to the hope he's given us, to the forgiveness and the love and the inheritance that we have in Christ. But you can't live like that if you're not stunned, overwhelmed, amazed by this mercy. Knowledge won't do it. Look, some of you do this. You, you live the clock in, clock out, and your theology is great. You know the stuff. But it's the mercies of God that compel us to do it. Or maybe the reason you don't live like that is because you don't think of it as mercy. You've begun to think of it as tradition or obligation or your rightful claim. So, you know, I would just ask you, maybe today after church, this week, take an account of your own life and say, am I living like this? If this is really the, the logical result of believing the gospel is to be a living sacrifice that worships God in everything. Is that true of me? Or maybe ask it like this, what areas of my life, what hours of the day do I still reserve for myself or other things? 
Don't be fooled, friends. Worship is not just when we sing three songs before the sermon and one song after. Worship's what we do with our life. And God is worthy of this kind of worship. Now, some of you are asking right now, Josh, I, I, I get it. I'm seeing the mercy of God. I'm seeing I need to live to worship him. I'm convicted about ways that I haven't been. How do I do that? How can I do that? So that's our third question. How do I do this? All right, so question number one, what should I do with my life? You should give it all to the Lord as an act of worship. Everything is for him. Question number two is the why. It's his mercy. It's the kindness of who God is. It'd be so weird to say you know God but not live for him in this way in spite of what he's done. But number three, how do I do this? How do I do this? The end goal is that we would, like I mentioned earlier, discern what the will of God is. At all times, we just say, okay, I'm doing what God's will is. Your end goal is you've now become a sort of a spiritual fact checker, uh, quality assurance. You are in all life looking and trying to discern, what is God's will here? Because I want to please him and he's shown me mercy. And so you try to, to do that. And yet we know we don't. We know we, as believers who love the Lord, fail sometimes. But this passage actually helps us figure out how to do it well. So look at verse 2 again. It says, do not be conformed to this world. It could be to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So conformed and transformed. And even in the, in the Greek, there's a strong contrast. It's don't be this, conformed, but be this, transformed. Conformed, you're not going to live like the world. The world, as we've already read, doesn't want to worship God in this way. So all the values of the world, the, the priorities of the world, the things the world treasures, it's not going to line up with this. So don't, don't live like the world. That's, that's the way you used to live. It's not worship of God. It's worship of self and other things. But you be transformed, right? You need to be transformed. You need to be changed. Why do we need to be transformed? We've already talked about in Romans 7, if you were back here, I think that was in December. You could look it up online if you want to listen to it. There, there's something about these bodies that... Uh, that are still corrupted by sin, that eventually will be rescued from in eternity. And part of that corruption is we still need to be transformed in a way that we would live as a living sacrifice. Now, how are we transformed? Right? How are we transformed out of love for sin, love for self, and love for God's will? It comes, it says, by the renewal of the mind. Right? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It begins with thinking. Thinking is where this starts. Remember back in, uh, I'll, I'll just look at it, back in Romans 1, it said, they did not know God, or sorry, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, this is 21, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right, so their thinking is what then affected their actions. I, I love self, I love sin, whatever gives me more of both, that is what I do. It, it, that's where you were corrupt to begin with. Colossians 1 will actually say that the unbeliever, uh, that believers were formerly, when they were unbelievers, alienated and hostile in mind. So in their thinking, they were hostile towards the things of God. But Romans 8, you can look there, Romans 8 tells us that our thinking has changed. So verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, 
set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, indeed, it cannot, those who are in the flesh cannot, please God. The mind has to do with what you're preoccupied with, what you're thinking about. Our minds constantly need renewal. Now, here it says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It has to do with your mind being set on spiritual things, spiritual truths. So Romans 8, when it says your mind set on the spirit, is on the things of the spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience. The aim of the spirit is to glorify Christ. So it's a mindset on Christ. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Colossians 3, right? Set your mind on the things above. That's on the eternal things. And 1 Corinthians 2 talks about we as believers have the mind of Christ. If you want to live like a living sacrifice unto the Lord, it begins with being enthralled by the work of the gospel, but it begins with thinking rightly. Now, we as Christians live in this constant pattern of amnesia and deja vu. We live in this constant pattern of amnesia and deja vu. Because here's the thing. All of you, if you're a Christian, have at one point totally believed the gospel. And you believed it factually. You believed it with your whole heart. You you were devoted, Christ is everything, Christ is all, he's all I want. And then there are times where you know those things factually, but you forget them. And you're not mindful of them. And you forget the things of eternity. You forget your identity. Uh, You forget what your life's about. You forget, like, sin isn't just an external thing, but a heart issue. We forget spiritual truth all the time. And so what we do as we set our minds on and allow our minds to be renewed by the things of the Spirit, by Scripture, by eternal things, by the person of Christ. Friends, what you spend putting your mind on, student, you've got to hear this, that is what you're going to become. So let's get really practical for a second. Let's talk video games. Video games are not evil. We have a Nintendo Switch. I dominate Jude. No, not yet. He's not allowed to play. But that sounds selfish. Um, But when you spend that much mind real estate, you only have so much. On that, there's going to be a transforming effect. Let's talk entertainment. So much of the world is battling your mind for real estate, for how you ought to think. Think about the way, you know, right now everyone's picking on Disney, but that's just, you know, right-wing media's favorite whipping boy right now. Think, think, about, think about all sorts of media, even neutral ones, uh, even veiled conservative morality is talking about, here's what's significant. Here's what's moral and amoral. Here's what will give you satisfaction. Think about your friends and the way your friends inform your thinking about what kind of relationship you should pursue. I remember being at winter camp a few years ago, and this is, many of you remember Abendroth. Abendroth is there, and he hears this conversation. There's two middle school girls, different camp, not us. And one girl says, 
hey, well, you can't help who you like, so they're going to have to deal with that. Okay, that's terrible advice. Terrible advice. But it's informing thinking. And so I'm praying that that young girl went, be gone, you know, or something like that. But it's, it's wrong thinking. All the time, there are things clamoring, saying, come this way, come this way. And what we need is to allow our minds to be renewed by allowing it to sit under Scripture and under the things of the Spirit. And so maybe you've thought before, why do we preach so much? I mean, my goodness, some of these places, they're, they're cool. This guy only preaches for 30 minutes. And then those places aren't wrong for preaching that long. There's great sermons that are 30 minutes long. But the reason why some of you come to first hour and come to second hour and then come back from night church is we need it because we're stupid, because we forget. Like, like I need to regularly be reminded that this world is not my home. I need to regularly be reminded that Jesus has paid for all my sins. I need to be reminded that just because I didn't act that way, the fact that I thought that way about that person was evil and wrong and hurtful to them. I need to be reminded of so many things all the time. And so I go to church to be reminded of truth. I, I sit with my Bible and I read it in the morning. Why? Because I suffer from spiritual amnesia. And I need the Lord by His Spirit to regularly remind me of truth that I'd be transformed and live for Him. Students, that's why this thing is very dangerous for us at church and in our quiet times. It's not because it's like showing us bad stuff. It's not like, oh, Pastor John's preaching. Like, oh, Islam's got some interesting things for me too. Like, that's not what's happening at all. It's just distracting us. By the way, there's a great, did you guys know there's like the, uh, the non-church distraction like app in this? It's super awesome. You hold these two buttons at the top together and you just slide to the right. And now you're like not distracted anymore. Um, but the reason why, the reason why I'm thankful that my wife will elbow me when I'm looking at my phone too much during the sermon is because I need it. I need to hear truth because I'm not spiritual enough on my own to go without it. So let me ask you a question. Can a living sacrifice do 10 minutes of this a day, a few hours of this a day, and a few hours of this a day? Maybe. But I'm not shocked when I hear that people that are living that way usually aren't doing well. I'm not shocked when the people that chat during the sermon, it's fine, this isn't like a rebuke time. I'm just saying, it's very, I mean, us in leadership have seen this a ton. Oh, that person was talking all the time, and three months later, we saw a major issue in their life. It's almost as if if they had listened to the truth, it could have renewed their mind. Friends, that's why we need the word. By the way, it's not just the word private. Colossians 3 talks about, let the word of God richly dwell within you. You help one another remember what's true all the time so that you live as a living sacrifice. That's God's power in his word. We need the truth. So student, if you want to live as a living sacrifice, I would just ask, what's your truth intake like? How are you getting truth? When are you meditating on the person of Jesus? I need to go to the word every day, not just to know what's right, to be enthralled by who God is. I think that's a great aim in your quiet time. Uh, If you were in first hour this morning, uh, there's a lot of great things that happened. We, again, sang together and heard from the word together. It was so nice to hear from Bruce Alvord missionary from Ukraine. Who, who was there this morning? And we're just encouraged by his testimony. 
And you're like, man, the way he lived there, they, they knew, by the way, that the uh, Russians were potentially coming for a while and they decided to remain there. A few months ago, uh, he wrote a letter to our elders. This is prior to the invasion. And I just want you to see this as an example of meditating on truth leading to action. Now, this is before the Russians had invaded. This is when they decided we're going to stay, even though things look gnarly. And here's what the letter he wrote. He said, we have made, so I'm going to read it off my, my phone. We have made some contingency plans because it seems like the wise thing to do. Like buying some non-perishable food, water, a propane stove, and packing bomb shelter backpacks that are ready to go. This is January. But as Christians, we are not here to please ourselves or even to survive. We are here to joyously and completely give everything we've got toward the fame of the Almighty, all out of love for Him with the hope to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our aims, friends. If you know the love of Christ, and if you're overwhelmed by the gospel, we set our minds on truth, allowing that truth to renew us, because we love the Lord, and he is worthy of our best. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've had to think about who you are. God, help us to be fully committed to you. Help us to not leave any part of our life for ourself, for the passing pleasures of this world. Help us to be open-handed with all things, especially ourselves, Lord, that we would be for you to do whatever it is that you would have us to do. Thank you for the gospel. God, you've given us more than we deserve. So help us to give all of ourselves to you, Lord.